you know, the problem is that the way 401ks are structured today is that each plan has most plans, you know, you have an investment advisor that helps the employer pick a menu of funds and gets paid to do that. And, you, you know, when I, when I get uh, those portfolios that are picked, Caleb, they're pretty much the same. Okay. <laughs> but these guys get paid as if they're rebuilding the Taj Mahal each time. Yeah. And they're, all there are is canned solutions. This is Better Wealth with Caleb Williams. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of the Better Wealth Podcast. In today's episode, I had the honor and pleasure to sit down with the guy that's noted for being the father of the 401k, Ted Benna. Now, we talked about in this interview the before and the after, and he actually came out with a book called 401k 40 Years Later, where he talks about the history, and he talks about a lot of stories, and he talks about the pros of the 401k. He talks about the cons of the 401k, and he actually is on a mission to help so many people that that want to be saving more, do it in a more effective way. And so um, I, first of all, just want to say, if you are an employer, if you are someone that's contributing to a 401k, or if you are in the financial service business, please stay till the end. This is a longer episode, but we, again, delve into the history, the pros, the cons. And then he and Ted is on a mission to do some amazing things. And so um, from the bottom of my heart, I am so encouraged and I'm so grateful that he took time out of his uh, day to speak with me and to be uh, able to share his message on my platform. And I, I asked him uh, questions at the end about marriage because he's been married for over 60 years. And I thought he also had an amazing legacy question. And I think what he's doing, uh, I'll call it a 401k alternative. He's, he's really giving small employers better options as it relates to helping their employees save, invest their money, but doing so with, uh, with a fraction of the fees that a lot of 401ks um, are charging. So without further ado, buckle up, enjoy my conversation with Ted Benna. Ted, welcome to the show. Hey, Caleb. It's uh, definitely a pleasure to be here with you. It, it is a pleasure having you on. And uh, you, are, you are one of the few people that I had on a list from the very beginning that I was like, if I could interview the father of the 401k, it would be a true honor. And I, I have to say, I I spent the last two days really watching a lot of your interviews. I read your latest book. I took copious notes for people that know me. I'm not a reader, but I, I, I read your book. And what I'm hoping to do is I'm hoping to create a platform and a conversation that helps open people's eyes. And what I really think would be great is to, number one, give them the history because your book is like 70% history, your story, and, and you do that for a reason. You want to give people context, and I think you even you've been taken out of context on a couple of interviews. And part of the way that we can avoid being taken out of context is to give give people context of you and your story. Um, you've spent over sixty years of your life fighting for the people, wanting to do the right thing, and and um, being in the industry uh, less than sixty years. Let's just put it that way. Um, I, I thank you for the work that you've done. And then I have a lot of specific questions and, and, and thoughts, but I, again, I really appreciate you being on here. And um, I'm wondering if you would open up and share with people um, your story. And I know that you got married young. You better believe I'm going to ask some marriage advice at the end of the show. <laughs> um, but I know you got married young, and I know that you grew up in the Philadelphia area. But for the, for the typical person that 
may have just knows you as the father of the 401k, how can we give them some context of 60 plus years in this industry? Okay. Uh, actually, I'm going to correct you on one point. I grew up on a dairy farm in South Central PA. <laughs> and the reason we were in Philadelphia for uh, 37 years in that area was because we got married so young, we ran away. <laughs> we knew our parents weren't going to warmly embrace our endeavor, uh, Caleb, so we took off to Philadelphia. And uh, yeah, I'd never been in Philly, neither one of us. I mean, uh, you know, a big city of that type. And uh, so any event, uh, how my career started was I answered an ad that was in the newspaper for a math clerk. And math was my uh, major and my strong suit. And so I answered the ad and it happened to uh, be in the uh, home office of an insurance company in their pension department. So that was where I started in the retirement business, uh, Caleb, and it was uh, actually working with defined benefit plans. Uh, you know, I, I was an actuarial grunt. And after five and a half years there, I was getting uh, offers, you know, to go to different uh, places and, and get out of that environment. And uh, so I ended up uh, joining uh, two guys who were primarily uh, in the insurance business as their primary focus. And they wanted to uh, build retirement side of the business. And uh, so with them, I started a benefit consulting company. It was actually Johnson Bennett Company. And uh, from scratch, uh, you know, built the uh, consulting company. Uh, we uh, sold that in 1990. Uh, we built it to uh, about 250 employees, about a you know, $25 million business in 1990. And you know, sold, sold it and I was locked into a three-year contract. Once that was over, uh, you know, I, was, I was out on my own and uh, you have know, been on my own ever since that. Very cool. And, and I know that you have, you've definitely been associated with potentially um, being responsible for blowing up a lot of the pension plans and all the stuff. But in your book, you, you write quite a bit about how before the 401k happened, what did most companies do for their employees? And what, what some people think is that this was a perfect pension plan. Everyone got pensions. Everyone was taken care of. And I think in your book, you'd give a pretty good argument that it's like, okay, pensions may have been good for some people but it wasn't what everyone thinks of it. So when you were in, you know, working with, with your company before it was sold, what were you doing before the 401k was happening? And I also know that you, 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 you said in your book that ERISA, it kind of hurt your guys' ability to even do your job. So can you give the listener, like what was the, what was retirement and retirement plan planning like before the 401k? Yeah, it hasn't happened uh, during this presidential election, uh, Caleb, but during the last one, um, you know, there was mention by our president and one of the, uh, you know, the candidates running that we need to go back to the old days, you know, when everybody got a pension and just walked away at retirement and, you know, they lived well, they got a fixed income for life. And there are a number of things wrong with that perception. The first is the fact that there was never more than 30% of the private workforce who recovered under an employer pension plan, you know, no more than 30%. And they were mostly, you know, the big companies. And the one other thing is, hey, I worked, the insurance company I worked for had a pension. 
And in order to get a benefit, you had to stay until you're age 60. I mean, I, I had to stay for 40 years, 42 years. Uh, if I left before that, I lost it all. And, uh, you know, that was typical in that time, okay? You know, that was, that was lock-in, you know, the golden handcuffs they referred to. And then another big problem is that companies that had plans that were underfunded, when they went out of business, retirees and workers lost a, a large percent of their pension benefit or, uh, you know, most of it. And uh, so that was, those were reasons why we got what you referred to as ERISA that was enacted in 1974. It was badly needed. It overhauled the system and it put in place additional layer of financial security called the Pension Benefit Guarantee Corporation. And, uh, you know, what happens is that uh, is a place where when companies terminate and have underfunded plans, some of those benefits may be provided by that quasi-government entity. But what happened when that was put in place uh, without getting deeply involved in it, the way it was structured made it impossible to sell new pension plans to employers that didn't have them. You know, that's what I was involved in doing. You know, I uh, sold pension plans. And what happened after RISA was companies couldn't, couldn't cleanly walk away from them, you know, when they went on, out of business. And so as a result of that, it became impossible, uh, you know, to sell those plans. And, uh, you know, that started the demise, actually, of, of the uh, private pension system. And take it a little bit longer here, I had the opportunity on the 20th anniversary of uh, ERISA to participate in a major celebration in Washington. And uh, I was given the responsibility of defending defined contribution plans against defined benefit plans. And, you know, it was a point counterpoint type of uh, setup. And, uh, you know, I mentioned in my opening mark, uh, remarks that I didn't get into that debate because, uh, you know, both plans had their positives and negatives. It wasn't that you know, one was perfect and the other one wasn't. But I also mentioned that that celebration, that when historians look back on the demise of the private pension system, that ERISA that we were there celebrating would be one of the primary reasons. And, you know, the two congressmen who were the uh, primary backers uh, of that program and there in the audience uh, participating in the celebration probably didn't like hearing what I had to say and uh, Caleb, if, if there was a 30th anniversary celebration, I didn't get invited back. <laughs> you probably could hear a pin drop as they, uh, they're like, what did we do putting him on stage? Um, so I just want to, I want to clarify. So that they, they brought in extra regulation because there's, it was needed. There's problems. But the problem is with that regulation, there's no company that wanted to take on that, uh, a plan after that because then they were taking on too much risk. Is that, is that uh, kind of a fair <laughs> Yeah, I can give you a specific example, uh, Caleb. I had one of the first plans that went through uh, Pension Benefit Guarantee Corporation. It was a small business, absentee owner, uh, you know, women in uh, low-level minimum wage type environment production. And the president came to me and said, look, uh, you know, some of these ladies have been here for 20, 30 years, and, you know, I'd like them to get something when they retire. And so I helped him design and set up a plan that he was able to sell the owner into doing. Uh, and one of the reasons the owner would agree to it is the fact that 
in that time, if a company like that set up a plan in good faith and they terminated it, uh, you know, there was no uh, liability tail to it. They simply had to use what assets were in the plan to provide whatever benefits could be provided. And in this particular instance, uh, within probably about three years after they set it up, you know, the company was on the ropes, uh, going out of business. And in the meantime, ERISA had been enacted. And now this company had to negotiate with PBGC because PBGC could claim a portion of their assets. And, you know, the president was irate. I mean, obviously, you know, his, the owner wasn't happy. Uh, you know, the president was irate. The government changed the rules on this thing. And, you know, they uh, had no way of, uh, you know, being able to work around that. And, you know, once those type of stories began to get published, uh, your accountants would tell, uh, you know, their clients, hey, look, you know, you, you don't want a pension plan. You know, stay away from these things. So what I want to do is I want to move forward. So after that happened, there was a gap before you discovered the 401k. What you, you did something like key off plans. And, and I'm wondering if you can explain like where your mindset was at, because essentially that regulation, while it may have been needed, kind of put you out of business unless you innovated. So what did you do until you discovered um, this little known secret in the tax code <laughs> that was put in? Yep. That, well, I actually, I made my first discovery, you know, digging into the laws regarding retirement plans to find out hey, I had an opportunity to do something that wasn't being done. And this involved what were known as KEO or, or uh, KEO plans. Uh, they were uh, plans for self-employed individuals, uh, Caleb. And uh, at the time, everybody thought they had to be set up with insurance companies. You know, that was the only way to do it. And uh, so uh, I uh, realized there was another opportunity and so started consulting to professional organizations, doctors, your know, accountants, attorneys, that there are ways to set these up actually where they could uh, have self-controlled investments, you know, where they can invest the money anywhere they wanted to. And uh, so, you know, that was uh, how I uh, ended up getting uh, initially involved with divine contribution plans. It was by necessity and finding, you know, that opportunity is a way to do it. So, so what I want to do now is like, you are very much known as the person that, I mean, you're called the father of the 401k and, and you, it's not like you came up with the tax code, but you discovered it. And then you got IRS to give the thumbs up. Can you walk me through that story? Cause you wrote about it in your book, but I really want people to have context of like, this didn't happen overnight. And you were very excited as you went through this journey. And I can very much relate to as I'm learning about money, just going back to, you know, some of the excitement that I've had. Um, so walk, walk us through that. Yeah, uh, well, what happened here was um, there was a type of profit sharing plan existing uh, called cash deferred plans. And they were primarily set up by banks. And reason banks uh, would uh, were setting them up was twofold uh, one, one was um, they realized that they weren't getting much mileage from lower paid employees by you know having these plans in place and the other one was the uh, you know senior executives that were getting cash bonuses um, you know we had 70 percent 
marginal tax bracket. So yeah, you got $10,000 contribution, or I'm sorry, you got a bonus of $10,000, 7,000 of it was going to taxes. So, you, you know, they um, developed what was called a cash deferred profit sharing plan. And this was an instance where IRS allowed these to happen, you know, treasury, but there wasn't anything. And you couldn't go and find any law, Caleb, that said, hey, here's how you can do this type of plan. And the way they worked was the cash bonus that you were getting got eliminated and it went into this type of plan. And half of it had to be deferred for retirement. The other half could be taken as cash. So what happened when ERISA was passed in 19... I'm, I'm sorry, pre-ERISA, it was 1972, Treasury put out a notice and said, hey, we aren't happy about these plans because the higher paid are deferring and getting a big tax break. You know, the lower paid are taking, virtually all taking the F as cash as cash. So uh, that came out in 72. And uh, 74, uh, Congress put a provision in ERISA that said, hey, Treasury, keep your hands off. We're going to decide the future of these plans, but they weren't ready to do that. So that was in 74. 1978, one of these end of the year tax bills where, you know, things get thrown in, uh, you know, in order to get votes, Section K was added under 401 of the IRS code. And Caleb, it was a page and a half long. That's all it was. <laughs> okay. Uh, and it wasn't expected, of course, to be a big thing. It was you know, expected to be very limited. In fact, the revenue, lost revenue impact was, uh, you know, uh, maybe $100 million or so, you know. And um, so uh, what it did, it created a framework for the future operation of these employer-funded cash-deferred plans. So that was 78. That provision became effective in January of 1980. And you know, I've been uh, quoted uh, supposedly saying I discovered a hidden paragraph. Well, this wasn't hidden. Uh, you know, I knew it was passed in 78 and anybody, uh, you know, familiar with these plans uh, knew it as well. But January of 1980 came, nobody was running around selling 401k plans. And so what happened in the fall of 78, I was redesigning the retirement program for a bank and, uh, was drawn back to this section, knowing that, okay, now we have a framework for how this might work. And I was working through that, um, you know, there are two key aspects that came to mind. One was the fact in order to make these work, you had to get broad participation for the lower two thirds paid employees. Otherwise they wouldn't work. And so I realized that if the only benefit a teller would get from giving up maybe a $500 bonus, you know, it was maybe a 50 or $75 tax break, probably wasn't enough. So what I came up with was the idea of, well, let's, um, you know, let's increase the ante. Let's add a matching employer contribution. It says, well, if you're willing to defer this for retirement, you'll get a tax break, but you'll also get additional money via and a match you know, from the bank. So that was the first concept of uh, utilizing this section of the code, you know, for an employer match type of plan, uh, you know, with then the next step, taking it to linking employee contributions. And, you know, the employee contributions to 401k, Caleb, are 
actually a salary reduction. You know, when you sign to participate in a 401k, you're authorizing your employer to reduce your salary. So those were the two things I brought to this, which is made it turn into what it is. And the key here is neither one of those provisions were in the law. You know, there wasn't anything there saying that you could do either one of them, but there wasn't anything saying thou shalt not. You know, I know the holy book, right? <laughs> the shall nots. That's right. Yeah, there wasn't any shall not. And you wrote in your book that there were the you were challenged. There's tax attorneys that were like, I don't know if I feel comfortable about that. And so you're what you're saying is this got thrown in to a bill, and the purpose potentially was just for high executives to be able to defer more of their money and save more money on taxes. And you saw that and you were like, wait, this this would be really powerful if more people got, could participate. And one of the best ways for them to participate, because if you're if you're not making a ton of money, the tax benefit is less than if you're making a lot of money. But you're saying the match was that carrot that would get more participation. And what was the tax rate in 1980? Well, the marginal rate was, you know, in the 70, 75% range. So, so you know, at the top. Yeah, which is definitely like definitely a, a, a bummer. Uh, let's just put it that way. Um, so is that like, is that kind of like accurate as, as you, like, that's what you saw. And then you, you obviously then sent that to the IRS to see if you could get the thumbs up. Cause you didn't want to set up plans and get your hand slapped. He, well, my senior partner at Johnson was concerned about that, that, you know, once it started to get out there, uh, you know, it could get shot down and that was a valid concern. So we were fortunate that, you know, Ronald Reagan got elected and, uh, when he formed his cabinet, one of our clients became the uh, transportation secretary, and he was a sharp business guy. And we were able to go down, meet with him on this. And his question was, what do you guys want? And we said, well, introduce us to Riggin over in the Treasury. And, you know, that hooked me up with the guy who was actually writing the regulations. And, you know, the 401k regulations were what was going to be key because since this legislation was only a page and a half long, the guts of it was going to be determined by the IRS regulations. And uh, so I had the opportunity to chat with him and uh, familiarize him with what we were doing. And he didn't give me any insight into uh, what was going to happen, but um, you know, as comfortable the match was gonna be all right, the big thing was employee salary reduction and uh, yeah, I was a, able to explain to him how if they didn't allow that, uh, IRS was going to have a really difficult time, uh, you know, administering this section of the law, because if he didn't allow, we could work it around it anyhow. And Caleb's another important part of this story as well. And that is the fact, you know, you know when we think about what happens politically, uh, Ronald Reagan, one of his key platform uh, in terms of domestically when he got elected was to increase capital formation. And the way he proposed doing that was making IRAs available to everyone. You know, at the time, IRAs were only available if you weren't covered by a plan. And the spearheader of that was uh, Jack Kemp, uh, you know, from Buffalo. And so I had the opportunity to meet with uh, Senator Kemp and I told him two things. I said, Hey, the first one is the fact that uh, 
there's this thing you guys don't have your eye on called 401k. It's going to be costing you millions of dollars of tax revenue within a few years. Uh, you know, take that into account in your uh, planning here. And the other one is I told him, hey, there's no reason you need to expand the IRAs because this is a heck of a lot better. Well, that input got ignored and uh, they went down that track and we ran off with 401k. Uh, later on, to have uh, President Reagan come back and try and kill this thing when he was, you know, doing his tax reform act. So uh, pretty bizarre times. They they wanted to kill it because the, a loss of revenue that they were experiencing because so many people are taking advantage of this. Yeah, what we were caught with at that time was the fact that the president was hell bent on not having tax increases, ratcheting up military spending. We had the Democratic Congress that you know, wouldn't budge on reducing entitlements and so forth. So we got gridlocked into what became known as revenue enhancers, you know, and they were backdoor ways of getting additional tax revenue without being identified as, as a uh, tax increase. And, you know, th that was the driver here of going after and trying to kill 401k, which was a backdoor way of getting additional tax revenue. And, you know, the only way it got preserved was by many participants at that time writing in saying, hey, what in the world are you doing? You know, this is the only way we have to save for retirement. And, you know, I'll mention, uh, well, I had thought about it when you were talking later on, you know, most important thing to me about 401k, Caleb, is it's really not a program that does much for, you know, the top wage earners, you know, 150, 200,000 and up. It's really a, a fantastic benefit for middle-income uh, America, you know, those in the 20 to 150 compensation range. And, uh, you know, that's been a real blessing to me, you know, to see that group get this kind of help. And, you know, the biggest benefit I've learned of 401k over the years is it converts benders into savers by making saving the first priority. Yeah. You know, and I've had many young individuals, you know, who've accumulated ten, fifteen thousand dollars in this these plans after a few years to say, wow, you know, I'd have never done this otherwise. You know, if it didn't come first out of my paycheck, it would never happened. The the richest man in Babylon, pay yourself first. The 401k is one of those one of those systems that can automate your ability to invest money. And and a lot of times, and because I see a lot of people that near retirement it, whether it's the right thing or wrong thing, the reality is their 401k other than their home is usually by far their biggest asset. Um, and as you and I both know, the savings rate, and we just have a savings crisis, quite frankly, in, in our country and in the world. And, and so it's, it's pretty crazy. And you've said multiple times in your book, and I want to I get to some hard questions with the 401k, but like you, you said multiple times in your book that the 401k is responsible for over $10 trillion dollars of accumulated money, whether it's rolled over or, or saved. And, and for that, you, you are, you can play a role in knowing that a lot of people futures are, are in a much better situation because you exist. So I, I think, I think you can look back and we're going to talk about fees. We're going to talk about some of the negatives, but like overall the 401k has been a positive thing. And, and now, and when I say this, people are like, Caleb, you've been critical on the 401k. Well, I've been, I think when you when you talk about high income earners, you talk about uh, entrepreneurs, you talk about investors. Some of the same reasons why a four hundred and one k so amazing, the restrictions, 
are some of the reasons why I've been critical for it. But really, most people, if they had control and access to their money, they would bankrupt themselves. So it really, it, I have to take a step back and say, each person's in a different place. And the 401k overall has done so much more good than it's been, been bad. Would you, would you agree or disagree with that statement? Oh, no, no question. Uh, my youngest son uh, said, hey, when you get uh, interviewed by financial writers, you know, that uh, you know, think 401k should be killed off, you know, because of its fact, you know, hey, it's certainly not perfect by any means. Uh, you know, uh, he said, well, why don't you ask him, where do you think we'd be today if Ronald Reagan's effort to kill it had succeeded, you know, back in 84? Uh, you, you know, and that's key. And tying off that point, uh, Caleb, most employees who are covered by these plans were never covered and would never have been covered by, by pension plans. Uh, you know, over 90% of the 401ks, the, the plans that are in existence cover businesses with less than 100 employees. You know, very few of those um, businesses had or ever would have had, you know, pension plans. So, so it gets mislabeled in that regard. And there's one other issue here I've mentioned in the book too, and that is the fact Hey, I know pensions, you know, I, I was uh, in the actuarial process, you know, I know how they function. One systematic deficiency of pensions, whether it's social security, state, local government, or private employers, is they have been legally permitted forever to promise benefits that are never properly funded. And so participants in most of these plans are unaware of the fact that they have as much investment risk is they do it in a 401k. They just don't know it. And it's like the whole risk. It's like, it's like, yeah, you have a pension plan, but it's only as good as the ability to pay. Absolutely. Your, your book is called 401k 40 years later. And as you look back, I think the best summary as I re you know read through it is, wow, I am like, it is so humbling that God gave you this platform and discovery and so many people have saved, but then you've also, you know, looked at kind of the nasty stuff that's happened in the Wall Street industry. And I've interviewed Barry Dykes on my on my podcast, and he talks a lot about the corrupt corruption. You talk so many so so much about fees. So I want you to dive into what like what happened to the industry once you discovered this, because um, it wouldn't have been amazing if you would have gotten paid a little bit for for all the people that have profited on the 401k. Yeah, I think you mentioned an in interview back in the day, if you had a quarter um, for every every time, you know, someone you got impacted by a 401k and you've actually had people that found your address and sent you a quarter. So why don't you talk about the negative side, especially as it relates to fees? Um, and because that is definitely a huge theme. And quite frankly, you have a business right now that addresses that same, same um, concept. And if I could summarize one thing, you are very, very passionate about low cost way of investing and fees are, fees are a huge negative thing as it relates to a 401k. Yeah. And uh, kind of give a broad perspective for a moment and get more specific is, you know, back in the early days of 401k, there were only two investment options and participants can split their money in 25% multiples. So they took about a minute for me to tell participants what their investment alternatives were, okay? You know, it wasn't it was that simple. You know, zero, 75, 50, 50, 25, 75. And uh, 
And at that point, uh, you know, the mutual fund was a, a mom and pop business. You know, they were, yeah, they were very small, uh, not that many of them. And, you know, including Vanguard, Fidelity, you know, they were small. So the first major point here is 401k has turned the mutual fund industry, you know, in, into what it is today. No question about it. Second is the fact that Wall Street and investment advisors were nowhere involved in this. Uh, you know, what happened, it probably, um, you know, it took about 10 years uh, for things to begin to shift. And, you know, first step was for the mutual fund companies to realize, hey, there's real money in this, big money. And so what happened, the first step that was troubling was we got into what were called bundle, bundled structures. You know, under the, the original operating structure 401ks, the employer paid the administrative fees, the participants only paid investment fees. And typically the investment fees were, were low, um, you know, particularly in the big companies because they leveraged off their pension assets, you know, and uh, how they structured the fees that were paid. So one of the uh, early books that I wrote, I interviewed HR directors for major companies. And I, I think I mentioned uh, one of them in the book. I won't do it here. But, uh, you know, one of the uh, big time Fortune 500 companies I interviewed explained, you know, the HR director explained how he moved their plan to Fidelity when, um, you know, Fidelity came out with a bundled structure and eliminated $100,000 a year off his HR budget when he was being pushed to, you know, to reduce fees. Um, and, you know, I talked to Fidelity uh, back in that era and I said, look, your current fee structure is designed, you know, for retail buyers who are putting 10, you know, five, $10,000, you know, into your mutual funds, you're getting hundreds of millions of dollars here, you know, there obviously should be a different fee structure. And I was told, well, we can't do that. You know, we have to have the same structure. Uh, separate point on that. Now, if you go to American funds, you'll find they offer 10 to 15 different fee structures. So they've gotten far away from that. Uh, you know, so that was the first problem was bundling became a way for companies to dump their administrative expenses onto and the participants. Can I clarify that for a second? So early on, people would pay like an administrative fee to someone like you. And then the the investments, there wouldn't be a high, like there the, the basis points would maybe be 20, like 20, you know, 20 basis points for the investment fee. But what happened is these companies would say, wait, we want to save some money. So we're not going to pay like the administrative fee to people like you. We're just going to essentially pass that on to the employee. And so instead of 20, 20 points, it's now they're, now they're upward to one, two. And you even mentioned your book 3% on some of these plans. Is that, is that a good, like the, it's, they're transferring the cost. Well, getting to the higher level is another story, but you know, this was the first step. You know, the first step was to move, you know, to 10, 20, maybe, you know, basis points up to typically a hundred or so. Yeah. So then, then, you know, we, um, the next major step involved investment advice. And uh, this is probably one of my regrets is that I helped launch investment advice. And, you know, the reason I did that was the guy who was pioneering that business, 
was uh, his plan was to do it via the internet, uh, you know, for you know, 10, $15 a year per employee, which certainly was quite reasonable to provide, you know, real hands-on help to participants. At the time, it was widely held that it was illegal to provide investment advice to participants. And, and that wasn't true. It was an incorrect perception. So I was able to get the Department of Labor to issue, you know, a pronouncement saying, hey, not only would we like, uh, you know, it's illegal, but we would like participants to get investment advice if it's done properly. So at the time I was helping, uh, you know, that business that, uh, you know, launched the online advice, you know, to market that, uh, you know, to get employers to embrace it. And, uh, you know, we, we met with, uh, you know, in order to do that, we had to get a buy-in from the major providers like Fidelity and Vanguard and so forth. And, you know, they resisted it terribly. Uh, I met with one of the major providers at that time, the head, head of it, and said, look, you should make this available to your, you know, your clientele. And his response was, there's no way in the world we're going to have an independent firm advising how they should invest because it'll affect my bottom line, you know, uh, our fees. So terrible, you know, major resistance. Uh, so what happened over time is that shifted, but what really changed it was all of a sudden the investment community realized, hey, wait a minute, rather than losing money, we can make more money. Yeah. And the way we can make more money is by providing advice and adding another layer of fees. <laughs> so that's what they did. Uh, so they added another 1% or so of fee on top. And uh, yeah, I was speaking uh, to a group of advisors, uh, an event, when this was happening, when one of the major insurance companies was explaining to them, hey, here's a way you can get paid another 25 basis points by selling our advice product. So that's how we got then to two, two to, you know, up into the 3% range. Yeah, it, that's, that's fascinating about how you had, you had a good intention. What was interesting is when did Empower start because I, I was so crazy because you were part of the company or at least advising them and they were an internet solution to give advice. When did that, when did that company start? Because obviously when I read that, I'm like, I very much resonated with our heart with better wealth is, you know, use the internet to help people. When did they, when did they start that company? Well, I got involved with them in 97. Uh, I'm not, would have been, you know, maybe 96 or something like that, that, yeah, they were starting to put it together. And, and was it, I mean, that was very innovative at the time. And I know that it didn't really work out. Was the reason it didn't work out is, was there just uh, people that pushed back because they didn't want there to be a conflict of interest of like you ultimately giving advice and then hurting the investment people's bottom line? Uh, no, actually it didn't work, Caleb, because the CEO of uh, Empower didn't listen to me. All right. the, way, the, the, the way they made it available was that employers paid a fee, you know, to make it available to the participants, and then Empower put major effort into trying to get them, you know, participants to use it. Well, the problem was Empower got paid for every participant, but they couldn't drive up the participant rates above ten to twenty percent. So what happened? Employers began to say, "Hey, wait a minute. I mean, you know, it's is great, but you know, the people that are using it are." 
typically the ones who are smarter anyhow, you know, we're really not getting to the ones who really need the advice. And, you know, that begin, you know, didn't really work. Uh, the way they should have launched it, which is what I was recommending, was to make it available to everybody and you had to default out of it. You know, so so you, you would automatically be given the advice and had to elect not to do it. And by the way, uh, you didn't have to implement the advice on your own. It would be implemented for you, which gets off down the road here. We can back to is how I got into discussion of uh, why I would blow up 401k investment structure um, and start over, you, you know, it ties into all of this. And, and obviously you've been, you've been taken out of context by saying like, when people take that as a headline, they're like, Oh, the father of the 401k regrets the 401k and all this stuff. And you're, what you're simply saying is this, the fees and, and how like are, are outrageous. And if you could do that over again, you would change how the fees work in these plans. Yeah. It's investment structure. Okay. Yep. And, you know, had, had, uh, Interestingly, at Empower launched this the way I was recommending, we wouldn't have seen target maturity fund or target date funds uh, get where they are today. You know, that was, uh, you know, they came right behind. And um, I I, I won't get off into that. But, uh, you know, when I was interviewed and you say about being taken out of context, I did that interview and talked, you know, made the comment about I blow it up. I was talking about the investment structure. Either the writer didn't understand or, uh, you know, creatively uh, flipped it. Any event, he got a big uptick on it. So it worked out to his benefit. That's well, that's how I knew you, who you were is in my research. A lot of people definitely use that as a tagline Um, and they're pushing an agenda and it's usually an anti 401k agenda so that they could make more money on something else. So it's crazy how the world works. Yeah, and interestingly, I mean, I got upset by it, uh, Caleb, but then I realized, yeah, I don't control this stuff and realized, well, it put me back more in the news than what it would have <laughs> otherwise. That's the positive side well, of it. Well, we'll call it the Trump effect, uh, all right? <laughs> um, the, so it, it's interesting. In your book, you talk a lot about target date funds and or target maturity funds. And, and I, it's interesting because I've always heard negative things about them, but you wrote in such a way that actually – if done well, it would avoid a lot of the unnecessary fees. So if you did that with a Vanguard low index fund, you could then take someone who majority of people are not educated and they're not going to spend the time being educated. And so it was one of those things where they could be properly balanced with their portfolio. And we won't get into that in this interview, but that they could be properly balanced with a low cost. But then you also said in your book at the end that you aren't in that nearing retirement because there's different rules when you're retiring you want to obviously look for income cash flow can you can you explain a little bit about what your thoughts are with target date funds or target maturity funds yeah and this will get in i'll, I'll um i want to talk about another situation working right now uh, ties into this a bit uh you know the problem is that the way 401ks are structured today is that each plan has most plans, you know, have an investment advisor that helps the employer pick a menu of funds and gets paid to do that. And, you know, when I when I get uh, those portfolios that are picked, Caleb, they're pretty much the same. OK, <laughs> but these guys get paid as if they're rebuilding the Taj Mahal each time. 
Yeah. And there, all there are is canned solutions. And the same thing happens with investment advice. Uh, and this applies to IRAs. Uh, you know, advisors are selling, and this is what Empower is trying to sell, which is the fact that, hey, look, you give us our data, we'll crunch it through our system, and we'll come back with your specific recommendation. Well, all of these structures, all that happens, Caleb, is, and you know this, there are eight to maybe 12 portfolios. You know, there aren't individual portfolios for each person. You know, there are eight to 12 canned portfolios that individuals are being pushed into. And so when I, the structure, you know, today, from what exists today, uh, and I've done this, I did it with about a hundred million dollar plan where we took the plan, blew it up, eliminated the investments they had, uh, moved it to Vanguard, put everybody in these target maturity date funds, but then also opened a full brokerage window, mutual fund window for those that wanted to continue to manage it on their own. And when you do that, about 90% of the participants, you know, stay in the target maturity funds. And the positives of that is they become less anxious about their investments. You know, when they understand it, that, hey, look, you leave it, you forget it, and you let it go, they stop getting uh, traumatized by the ups and downs. And those discussions around the water tank and, you know, over lunch, etc., go away. And so what happens, you know, the biggest mistake the people make are moving their money at the wrong time, as you well know. You know, so those who tend to be running on their own, you know, typically end up looking at what's really hot. That's where they place their money, which is usually in the next cycle, what's going to be in the bottom. You know, they're moving out or they panic and sell out when the market's, yeah. you know, at, uh, at 8,000 and buy back in when it's 20,000. Yeah. Yeah. Welcome. Welcome to America, ladies and gentlemen. So, um, yes, I, I, any, anything else you want to put, I have quite a few more questions that I want to delve into and it's crazy how time flies. Uh, well, I'm okay. I, you know, I have a couple you know, stories I'd like to get into that are specific I, examples, but yes. And I want to go into the stories. I have, I have two, I have one question that I just, I want to talk to you about because I want to get your thoughts on it. So, you know, like when Irissa came in and they very much crippled the pension plan, you know, industry. And you look at, you look at, you know, our government and you look at, we're in an interesting election time right now. And my, here's my, like, if I take a step back, you obviously have written this in the, in your book that the 401k, it, you never, it was never designed to be the sole retirement plan. It was never designed to be that for, for most people. My big concern is I just look at where our country is going and I wonder if it if it's like from a philosophical point of view, is a lot of people are putting their money in a in a plan that's participating in the government and that can be changed or restricted or taken away. And I don't want to get super extreme and I'm not I don't want you to take this the wrong way. I just wonder, like, is that a concern that we should have? Should we be hedging? Should all of our money be going into a, a government sponsored plan that potentially the biggest risk might not be the investment risk or might not even be the fees. It could be a politician, you know, 
trying to figure out what we're going to do with our unfunded liabilities and get creative. Have you thought about that? Have you been asked that before? And that that's obviously just something I think about. Um, we have a big issue, obviously. Yeah, we got a run runaway train wreck in Washington. You know, no, no fiscal responsibility anywhere. Uh, you know, some point it's got to hit the wall. And, um, you know, when it happens, uh, who, who, who knows? You, you know, uh, where, where can you be safe? <laughs> uh, I, I don't have the answer to that. I mean, uh, you know, can they take over? 401k? Well, yeah, probably could. Can you take over my personal bank account? You know, how about my real estate, you know, uh, and, and other assets? I mean, yeah, we, we don't know the answer to that. Yeah. So I, I guess uh, my input generally to people in that regard is uh, the only real planning you can do is based on historically things kind of uh, operating as they have in the past, but also tying into the kind of things you do clearly you need to know most people need to do more than 401k yeah. you know so uh for sure uh, you know they need to look at uh, things like you know you do and other types of investments i mean okay. you know i've done that personally and you know you got to yeah. do that sometime we're going to i'm going to have you back on the show we'll talk about bank owned life insurance and coli and core and and pension plans because i know that you you can go down the rabbit hole with that i uh one thing I want to now go into are the three case studies because I want I, I, the big call to action here is I want to drive people to the work that you're doing. If you're a business owner and you're listening to this right now, take action um, because the work that you're doing is very much shedding light on how people can can pay less in fees and create a, a, a plan that's a, really a win-win. And I know that you have a couple stories with that and I really want this to be uh, helpful for the listener, and, and I want to help you get your message out. Well, thank you, Caleb. Yeah, there are three of them I want to run through, and uh, I've worked on this, uh, you know, the last three years or so, and uh, what I've been focusing on is, you know, the um, small business group, generally where we have business owners earning under $100,000, you know, uh, solo entrepreneurs, family-type businesses, etc. And uh, so, I started on this and um, came up originally with uh, four different designs that are ways to pretty much duplicate the benefits of a 401k, but without any fees set up or administrative fees and without all the complexity you have with a 401k. And, you know, those programs can, uh, you know, they can be in the assets can be invested as little as, uh, you know, 0.08%. I mean, uh, you know, that's, uh, that's been amazing. And as I did that, I came up actually with some creative ways of being able to take payroll deduction IRA as one example, and uh, work into it an employer contribution. It was matching contribution. It was kind of what, what happened with 401k, you know, uh, there's a, there are a couple of different designs I uh, came up with of uh, IRA-based payroll deduction, 401ks with a matching employer contribution. And, and, and so what is the difference between that and a 401k? Because it almost sounds identical. Well, the difference uh, is, uh, man, you, you don't have the complexity. <laughs> uh, 
you 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 have none of the uh, compliance issues to deal with. Oh, yeah. Uh, <laughs> with, with, with a family-owned business, you know, small yeah. business, you, you, I don't want to get too deep here, but you have two big things to, to contend with with a 401k. It's top-heavy and non-discrimination. So as a result of those, for most family-owned business, you need to make a 3% of pay employer contribution for 401k to work. Well, hey, many small employers, you know, can't afford or don't want to make a 3% employer contribution. So that's one issue. Uh, the other one is you have the fees, you know, the setup and the operating fees. And the next is some liability exposure. And so I'll get into a story. Uh, as I was working on this, I got approached by a local business here that had a 401k. And they asked if I would look at it. And I, I said, sure. And uh, so when I got the details, it's a seven employee business. They had about 800,000 in their, in their plan. And uh, employer is paying over $1,500 a year in fees. Participants were paying 2.75%. So the uh, designs I came up with here, I put into in the model guide. So I gave them, I said, model three, you should replace the 401k with model three. They did that. They eliminated all employer fees. They eliminated, uh, you know, they reduced the cost for employees to, you know, the 2.75 down to 0 0.14%. You know, gigantic difference, okay? Uh, so that's the first story. Uh, the next one, you know, involves the state mandates. You know, uh, Oregon is the uh, spearheader of this. They're out in the forefront offering a program called Oregon Saves. So I launched an effort to comport, com compete with Oregon Saves last fall. And the reason I did that, Caleb, is uh, the Oregon Saves program is limited to Roth IRA only, you know, which is after tax, uh, limited and very limited investment options, but it costs 1%. And so, again, these alternatives that, uh, you know, that we make available uh, provide uh, more other, you know, tax alternatives, not just the uh, regular, I'm sorry, the Roth, but the traditional Roth. So you can do either, you know, wide open investment alternatives, you know, and investments, uh, you know, for as low as zero eight uh, percent, uh, you know, so that's that's another example. And, you know, so we've help some uh, empl small employers that have uh, checked this out, uh, take advantage of that. And then the last story is uh, one that I'm in right now. Uh, you know, this is uh, a Pennsylvania solo entrepreneur and uh, she has worked really hard, uh, have a successful business. She makes about 65K from it. And uh, she's putting uh, her advisor set her up in a, uh, Solo K, uh, she's putting 16,000 into uh, Roth and 16.5 into the Solo K. She's done a great job, fantastic. When I initially got her information, I said, hey, wait, great. Uh, this is what you should be doing. And then I started to peel the layers off and dig underneath it, found out it had been set up the way it was been structured. She's losing almost $3,000 in tax benefits that she could be getting annually that she's not getting. 
and then I said, well, tell me about the investing. And she gave me investing information, found out she's paying you know, 1.89% for investing when she could be doing it for 0.14, you know, and getting same type of investments. I mean, it, it aggravates me. I mean, it really aggravates me to see that happening. So a couple, couple clarifying questions. So number one, it sounds like you are a way, you're not a huge fan of the Roth. Is that, am I picking up on that? Well, uh, yes and no. I mean, I've written a paper called Roth or not the Roth. Uh, you are a lot of things to take into consideration, um, you know, whether you should do it or not without, okay. you know, getting bogged down on it. Well, and, but, and I just, what, and I I just look what, at what, what bugs me on it, Caleb, is the, all the people without getting into names, including one of the most famous known one who says everybody should have a Roth. <laughs> yeah, that's what you right. should do. And they ask one question, do you expect tax rates to be higher or lower in the future? And, you know, and based on that fact, well, you ought to do a Roth and they, you know, there are a lot of other things to be should yeah. be considered. And, and I know who you're talking about. And, and it's, it, it is interesting because I look at the future and I go, yes, you can, you can get a tax benefit today, but if taxes are higher, that that that's there, there's no benefit there and so that's that's the one thing that it's just i wonder for some people like when the 401k was started the taxes like you said a top tax was over 70 percent. so deferring was a very very smart move now i think it's an interesting and i definitely if you're listening to this you want to talk to someone who can look at the full picture um so that, I guess that was my that was my question. The other question I have is these four hundred one k alternatives. What are the contribution limits if you're dealing with the IRA? Um, are they less, or can you in some cases con- contribute more than what you can in a four hundred one k? Well, the um, you know to, the first two models are limited to the uh, IRA personal limits, and uh, you know for many uh, small businesses uh, that works for them. You know, it's, it's an, it's an easy way, you know, set up a plan that you will mirror and look like a 401k. Uh, You know, the third one is uh, as much as 25% of compensation. So, uh, you know, if you're making a hundred thousand, that's 25,000 bucks a year. Which is Um, more than what you can put into a 401k. Yeah, sure. And then the, um, you know, the last one, I forget uh, dollar wise, it gets up into, you know, twenty some thousand dollars. You know, okay. plus a three percent employer match. Okay. okay. So, so you know, again, these are viable alternatives for most businesses where the owner is earning less than hundred thousand. Yeah. You know, they're not the answer for you know attorneys, doctors, it's so forth that are making two, three hundred thousand. Got it. Okay. Okay. Amazing. I. I thank you so much for, for coming on and not only sharing the history, but just being willing to share your wisdom. I mean, I, it's, it's so funny as you're naming out all these dates, I wasn't even a thought <laughs> like, yeah, you know, so I just, I'm, I'm grateful to be talking to someone who is like hitting the streets and actively advocating on my behalf and others before I was even born. So thank you for that. Um, any final thoughts you have on the 401k? I want to ask you two questions before we wrap up. They have no, nothing. I just, they have I just no wonder, 401k related. They're not 401k related. I just wonder uh, how many people be uh, willing to sit through this long of an interview. It's 
pretty probably be pretty boring. <laughs> oh, I, I assure you, we we have some uh, people that love to know the details, and and this is this is what I'm going to preface this whole interview with is uh, this is not for the the person that wants a soundbite. We can do that, uh, but this this will be a very uh, good for someone that really wants to dive in. So, the last two questions that I have is number one: been married over sixty years. What what is your what is your two cents on on having a happy marriage? Uh, well, there, there, there are two. Yeah, the first one is the fact that despite our age, Caleb, we, we didn't engage in this as an experiment. You know, we both, you know, committed to the fact that, hey, this is, this is permanent. Uh, that, that was number one, which was certainly important. And, hey, look, I mean, shoot, we know, you know, marriages go through difficulties. And, uh, you know, we had uh, four kids, uh, actually, well, God bless, uh, you know, fortunately, his design more than ours. You know, we were married for a few years before the first one came, but then it came fast. <laughs> and we had four and I think it was 50 months. And, uh, you know, fortunately, it stopped. Uh, and that was a challenge. You know, fortunately, Debbie was the oldest. The three boys were uh, type A, aggressive, athletic, extremely competitive. And uh, life was very interesting. And yeah, when they were in their teams, and I used to speak for Christian businessmen, I uh, said I wasn't sure whether they would live that adulthood or I would. But fortunately, we made it, and they're all doing well, and have nine grandchildren that are doing okay. Uh, but you know, the second key that was very important was, uh, you know, when I was 28 years old, I came to a, a saving faith by accepting Jesus as my Lord and Savior, and you know that. Uh, changed the direction of my life, uh, you know, dramatically. Uh, and, uh, yeah, if that hadn't happened, uh, I, uh, I, uh, it's highly unlikely our marriage would have survived. Thank, thank you so much for sharing. I, I think a lot of people get into things and they, they have the attitude. We'll see what, what happens. And, um, it's, it's powerful. Those two things that you shared. So thank you for that. My last question that I ask all of the people that I have the opportunity to interview is what I call the legacy question. And the legacy question essentially goes like this. Say this is your last day on earth and you're with the people that you love the most, your kids, your wife, and anyone else that you consider close family. What are you going to pass on through what you've learned? You can't give them any money. You can't give them any tangible things. You can give them one last conversation. What are you going to make sure to communicate in that conversation? Well, obviously, the top of the list is, you know, the faith issue, uh, clearly. And, uh, but probably the next one, uh, you know, that I have told them and I tell other young people is whatever you choose to do, there are going to be things you don't like about it. It doesn't matter, you, you know, but your success is probably going to be determined most by how well you tackle the things you don't like about, you know, your job, even if you have your own business, then the things that you do like. That's, that's one piece of advice I readily give. And then probably the next one be the fact that the most important thing isn't how much you make, but it's how you deal with what you do make. And, you, you, you know, you have spenders and savers. And I have certainly found over the years, and I have it true in my own family, that the savers even though they may make less money, have money available. 
and they have assets. The spenders don't. And the problem with the spenders, for, you know, to them, the issue is I just need more money. And they unfortunately get them, you know, more money and uh, it gets spent. So, you know, when you're starting out young, and I've just have, uh, recommended this to uh, one of my granddaughters, is the importance of having a budget. And, uh, you know, I uh, suggested to her one that's available online, uh, you know, to uh, be able to tap in and to utilize and uh, said, hey, look, uh, yeah, you got to do that and uh, learn how and the sooner the better. Love it. Deb, thank you so much for, for coming on. How can people find out the work that you're doing, support what you're doing, get your book? I know you can get, get this on Amazon and I will have all the links below, but how is, what's the best way for people to reach out to you? Our website's www.bena401k.com. Yep. So go to www.bena401k.com or go on the Amazon. What? Well, I'm say that'll do it. Yep. And, and, or you can go on to Amazon, type your name in, um, or go or look for 401k 40 years later. It's a phenomenal read. Uh, thank you so much. I look forward to seeing what the future holds. I've learned a ton by being here. You got my mind racing. And I can't wait to actually learn your genius because I want to, I want to continue <laughs> your work on and help people pay less in fees and help people become savers. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for listening to the Better Wealth Podcast. It would mean the world to me if you could hit subscribe, leave a review and share this with the people that you know and love.